Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature, and your church gathered together by the word of life, and strengthened by the power of the sacraments, may advance in the way of salvation and love. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. When I was um, coming into the Catholic Church four decades ago, the priest who instructed me used the expression, the web of grace, to describe the nearly invisible gossamer threads that can bind lives together in wondrous and unexpected ways. This coming Friday is the 40th anniversary of my conversion to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I woke up that Friday morning still an atheist after years of struggle and went to bed that night with a sure and certain knowledge of the truth of the gospel. And the man who walked with me that final step was a classmate at Princeton who grew up in Chapel Hill and went on to marry another of our classmates. His name is Roger Brooks. He's an attorney. Um, he and his wife lived in New York for many years while he practiced law in the belly of the beast. But they've returned to North Carolina and have established a new home in Chapel Hill. And, and their, their home is a center of Christian radiance. It's just spectacular. The reason I mention it this morning is that Ben's story just told me he stayed with the Brookses on his way south from D.C. to Greenville for this occasion, not knowing before he went into their home what Roger was for me 40 years ago. The web of grace. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. According to St. Mark, these were the first words spoken by the word made flesh at the beginning of his public ministry in Galilee after his baptism in the Jordan by his kinsman John. Time, kingdom, God, repentance, belief, gospel. These are the six key realities at the heart of Christ's proclamation, and they are essential to the question I will explore today. What, if anything, is the relationship between the good news and good government? But before we examine these evangelical realities, we should pause to consider what government is. Since Homo sapiens have lived together in units larger than one biological family, men have thought and argued about how we should live together in communities. The polis was central to Greek thought. And from this we get politics. The civitas, or kiwitas if you're a German, was central to Roman thought. And from this we get citizen and civilization. And the Romans gave us also the concept of the res publica, the public thing or commonwealth in which men live together for their mutual benefit. Every major civilization, of course, developed its own concept of the good life 
of the common good and of good government, however these were conceived. But above all others, it was the thought of Greece and Rome as preserved by Christianity, explored in the high Middle Ages, and exalted in the Renaissance that shaped the founders and framers of our great republic. And so the ideas of the polis, the civitas, and the res publica are of signal importance to our conference today entitled Baptized at Birth, Catholicism and the American Founding. To the thought of Greece and Rome, we must also add the notions of tribe and kingdom that were central to Jewish thought. But these ideas were at the service of the covenant made with one people, the descendants of Abraham. And the claims made for both tribe and kingdom were directly connected to the identity of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who revealed himself to his chosen people and then set them apart from the nations to be his witnesses. Because of the singular identity of Israel then, our consideration of the American founding and the form of government it bequeathed to us can proceed without detailed attention to the Jewish understanding of the common good, except insofar as Christ's proclamation of the kingdom of God must be understood with reference to the kingdom of David. So, we go back to the beginning of Christ's public ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. But to what time does the Savior refer? Well, all of time including the 14 billion years or so since the beginning of this universe and the four and a half billion years since the formation of our sun and its planets. The time fulfilled also includes the now 4,000 years since the calling of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and the 3,200 years or so since the mission of Moses to lead the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt and receive the gift of the law. And the 3,000 years since the anointing of David as king. But in addition to the count of centuries, millennia, and eons, the scriptural notion of time also includes the idea of the right time. We read in Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so St. Paul wrote to the Galatians that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might have adoption as sons. The word for time used by Christ in Mark's gospel is kairos, meaning the right time, the right season as measured by fittingness, while the word for time used by Paul in Galatians is chronos, the period in which some activity takes place as measured by a chronometer. And the Septuagint translation of Ecclesiastes uses both words for time, chronos and kairos. Putting these notions together then, the arrival of Jesus Christ in recorded history, chronos, is also the right season, kairos, in which God would finally and fully reveal his eternal plan of salvation for the entire human race. So, The paschal mystery of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the breaking of the kingdom of heaven into our time at the right time. But what is this kingdom of heaven? The Himmelreich, the Regnum Dei, the Basilea to Theu, 
Christ himself answered this question when he taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven exists wherever and whenever persons live in perfect harmony with the salvific will of God the Father. And since God the Son from all eternity existed in perfect harmony with God the Father, then when the eternal word was made flesh, the kingdom of God came to earth in his sacred humanity. So, because the Lord Jesus, the Son of Mary, was also God the Son, the kingdom of heaven was at hand on earth from the moment of his incarnation in the fullness of time. But the sovereignty of God was and is a disputed sovereignty. And every sin committed by any person, anywhere, and any time constitutes rebellion against the kingdom of heaven. And so the Lord Jesus connects citizenship in the Renum Dei to conversion from sin. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. But even those who recognize that their lives are disordered by selfishness need a guide to teach them what a good life is and how to live for the common good. And so Christ immediately adds, repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is not just a change of mind and heart. It is the radical reorientation of my entire existence away from me at the center and back toward God as my origin and final end. And after the fall, such a change is impossible for any man by himself, which is why we need the grace of God to be changed. This grace is the free and unmerited favor of God that comes to us ordinarily by the gift of faith or trust in Jesus Christ. And in this sense, faith is not simply notional assent to a proposition. It is rather the cleaving of one's entire self to God through liberating obedience to the word of God by which God reveals himself and his eternal plan of salvation to the human race. The word in Greek used in Mark's gospel to name this supernatural gift of divine revelation is euangelion, and that comes into Latin as evangelium. This word signified to the Romans the accession to power of a new emperor, and to the Greeks it meant an official public announcement of great importance. Evangelium came to Anglo-Saxon as Godspell, or good story, and from this we get our modern English word, gospel meaning the good news of the redemption of the entire human race from slavery to sin and the grave by the atoning death and glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So according to Christ, our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven comes from our repentance from everything that is contrary to the gospel, a change that is worked in us by God's grace through the obedience of faith. And now we come to the beginning of our discussion of good government by examining the end of the public ministry of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus was arrested by Jewish authorities in the wee hours of a Friday morning. And in darkness, he was quickly tried for blasphemy on trumped-up charges. After his conviction, Christ was turned over to the Romans for execution and so stood before the Roman governor of Palestine in his praetorium a symbol of Roman imperial power. Pontius Pilate, vexed by the rabbi from Nazareth, plainly asked him, Are you 
the king of the Jews. Recall that the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew's gospel goes out of its way to make the point that Jesus is a legitimate descendant and therefore heir of King David. The line of David, of course, was scattered centuries before by war, by the Babylonian captivity. But the line was not forgotten. In his public ministry, Jesus, who was born at Bethlehem, the city of David, was called son of David six times, including just five days before his arrest and trial, when a huge crowd gathered in Jerusalem for Passover shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, as he entered the holy city. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Much was at stake in the answer of Jesus to this question, not least because of the complex relationship between Roman imperial power and the administration of Judea and Galilee by local puppet kings who were nominally Jewish but despised by their people as faithless collaborators of Gentile oppressors. And because of this web of competing loyalties, Jesus responded to Pilate with a question of his own. Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? This distinction, I believe, has practical consequences for our own consideration of Christianity and politics, which we might discuss later. But for now, the more important point is what comes next. Pilate answered Jesus, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And now we come to it. Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be hand delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. We know, of course, that Jesus Christ is a king. Indeed, he is the king, the king of kings, the king of all creation, the Pantocrator, or ruler of all, by whom and for whom the entire universe exists. But his kingdom is not of this world, and all earthly expectation of the Messiah as a conquering hero is doomed to be a disappointment, as Judas Iscariot discovered so bitterly. The Messiah did not come to restore the kingdom of David to Israel or any earthly kingdom. He did not come to vanquish injustice at the head of a righteous army, bringing the rule of law and right reason to the ends of the earth. Instead, the Christ came to inaugurate the kingdom of God, an eternal and universal kingdom of justice, love, and peace, by suffering at our hands, by dying in our stead, and by rising from the dead, to reveal the new life of grace which he commanded be preached to the ends of the earth and the end of days by his church, which on earth is the seed and beginning of his kingdom. But, his kingdom is not from the world, and so we cannot draw detailed conclusions about the right orderings of the kingdoms of this world from the nature of the kingdom of God. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not include a blueprint for government of any kind and does not propose a political philosophy for Christ's disciples to help them shape the government of cities or nations 
except to establish this foundational principle. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Meaning, among other things, that the state, however it is conceived, is not sacred, and that those who rule, whoever they may be, are not God's. In this sense, the Lord Jesus did introduce one revolutionary idea to the understanding of human government by Christians. And yet it is nonetheless also true that Christ's kingdom is not of this world, so that every attempt to conflate earthly kingdoms with the kingdom of heaven will inevitably fail and lead to miseries of many kinds, as history amply illustrates. I submit that this salutary truth must be borne in mind by every Christian who finds the political order in which he lives to be deficient in any way, as do many impressive thinkers in our time and place, not a few of whom are convinced that the Enlightenment project, which shaped the founding of the United States and the framing of our Constitution, is fatally flawed by a false anthropology and a metaphysical deficit and must therefore be replaced by some form of res publica Christiana to ensure that grave injustice is not visited upon entire peoples, including especially those who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And let us stipulate here that our great republic is indeed in great distress and showing clear signs that the dictatorship of relativism has already hollowed out the plain meaning of our governing documents and replaced our guiding ideas with concepts that sound the same, but mean the opposite of what the founders and framers intended. But the diseases at work in our body politic are the product not merely of a few elections or partisan posturing. They are, I believe, the result of a cultural cataclysm many decades in the making that includes massive apostasy by the baptized from faith in Christ Jesus, and the sexual revolution with its illegitimate offspring of the abortion regime and gender wars, and the long march through our institutions by disciples of those who want to destroy the rest, who want to destroy the West, and then raise up a new civilization of the woke. Not another great awakening, a great awokening. (laughs) But here we should note that even the woke seek a transcendent horizon which will give meaning and purpose to their lives. But since they have rejected the God and religion of the Bible as enemies of human freedom and flourishing, they, like all pagans before them, must create a new horizon of their own. But they refute the givenness of human nature and deny any reality or causality beyond nature. And so they miss their intended mark, not because their aim is too high, but because their aspirations are too low and the frustration of constantly missing their mark will lead the woke to strike out in anger at anyone who dares question their project. Accordingly, I readily acknowledge that we are confronted by very serious problems in this country and that Christians in the United States are surrounded by hostile forces who pose a grave danger to our freedom of religion, a threat that will only gather and grow in the years ahead. But I remain unconvinced that our present distress is caused by the nature of this republic. And so I am unpersuaded that we should seek to change the structure of our government. And among the reasons I remain unconvinced 
is that I believe the American Revolution to have been based on sound principles, many of them shaped by Christian faith and life, and that our revolution remains essentially different from all other revolutionary political movements of the past three centuries, most of which resulted in oceans of blood being spilt in the name of liberté, égalité, and fraternité, or some variation thereof, while resulting only in some form of totalitarian misery. But we are here today to discuss these questions because other people, some of them very serious scholars whose wisdom and goodwill are well known, maybe even self-evident, other people have concluded that the American Revolution and the constitutional order it produced have a ticking time bomb at their center because of which there is no way to prevent the self-destruction of our republic and that we must therefore take counsel together now for what comes next. My first glimpse of this analysis came in March 2014, right here in Greenville, at a splendid dinner party in the home of our next speaker, Dr. Benjamin Story, and his wife and colleague, Dr. Jenna Story. The occasion for that evening was a visit by Dr. Patrick Deneen, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame and author of the best-selling book, Why Liberalism Failed, which was published in 2018, four years after I was treated to a preview of its argument over a delightful dinner. But though Deneen may be the most prominent of those who subscribe to the theory that liberalism has failed, he is far from alone, and the roster of serious thinkers who are persuaded by this position continues to grow. Please note that by liberalism, Deneen does not mean the politics of the modern American left. On the contrary, classical liberalism means almost the opposite of today's progressivism, and it includes a commitment to, among other things, the rule of law, representative democracy, the separation of powers and government, strict limits on state power, individual liberty, free markets, freedom of expression, and neutrality on religion by the state. The erosion in public life of this last commitment, neutrality on religion by the state, causes great concern to those who believe liberalism has failed because since freedom of religion is the first and most fundamental natural human right, if religious freedom is compromised by the dictatorship of relativism, then we are already, and perhaps irreversibly, on the road to tyranny. Here we should recall that the American settlement of religious disputes was shaped and made necessary by centuries of religious conflict and warfare in old Europe. And so our founders decided that the state would have no religion so that all citizens could have whatever religion they chose for themselves. For this reason, the no establishment clause of our Bill of Rights exists to protect the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, or so James Madison intended. But the trend of the last three or four generations has been toward the reverse of that relationship, and our toxic public culture both collapses the capacious freedom of religion into a narrow freedom to worship, and then demands that all religious conviction and expression be excluded from the public square and from the political life of this nation in the name of neutrality. But the First Amendment was not written to protect the state from the church. It exists to protect the church and everyone in it from the state. And we forget that lesson at our peril. 
The apposite question for today is whether this parlous state of affairs exists because of or in spite of classical liberalism, as well as is the present danger sufficient to justify despairing of our polity and its philosophical foundations. Ben and Jenna Story, both of whom teach political philosophy at Furman University, have recently published a book entitled Why We Are Restless, a thoughtful and meditative text which explores the continuing consequences of the enlightenment in our culture. But their attention is not given to John Locke, a starring villain in the work of Denine and others. It is given instead to the winsome French essayist Michel de Montaigne. In their view, if I may borrow from a recent profile of their work in the Wall Street Journal by Barton Swaim, classical liberalism is not the cause of our contemporary discontents, but neither is it the solution. And in his lecture today, Dr. Story will explore the ways in which enlightenment ideas are still at work for good and ill in the lives of 21st century people. And the subtitle of the story's book will point the way for us on the modern quest for contentment. Robert Riley will then mount a direct defense of the American Revolution and the structural soundness of the Great Republic, as he does in his rollicking and tightly reasoned book, America on Trial, a defense of the founding. Riley rebuts the claim of Deneen and others that there is a metaphysical void at the heart of this nation which dooms it to destruction and which made inevitable the unspooling of classical liberalism into nothing more than lifestyle libertinism and nihilism, whether of the debonair or murderous varieties. And Riley goes even further by insisting that Catholic Christianity had a greater role in shaping our founding than even the founders knew. Of course, this same appreciative approach to the uniquely American effort to find a path to religious freedom and responsible self-government was also taken by Father John Courtney Murray, the Jesuit theologian whose work did so much to make possible the Declaration on Religious Liberty of the Second Vatican Council, called in Latin Dignitatis Humanae, the dignity of the human person. This declaration of Vatican II affirms that the Catholic Church acknowledges liberty of conscience for all persons in matters of religion, that the human person has a natural right to religious freedom, that constitutional limits should be set to the powers of governments in order that there be no encroachment on the rightful religious freedom of persons or associations, that true religion cannot be imposed by any exterior power, and that while the church insists on the legal freedom to fulfill her own mission as a distinct society in every nation, she does not seek special privileges or unique establishment in law. The church's mission includes, in addition to the obvious work of divine worship and teaching the gospel, the freedom to manage employees, own property, and run institutions of many kinds, including schools, hospitals, clinics, charities, and social organizations like adoption agencies, in accordance with the truth of the gospel and without legal interference from the state. In many ways, this teaching document of an ecumenical council was a peace treaty between the Catholic Church and the American Revolution. And it is worth noting that long before Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre rejected the liturgical forms of Vatican II and was excommunicated, 
He also rejected Dignitatis Humanae, charging falsely that it is incompatible with the Catholic faith. Archbishop Lefebvre and his movement are closely identified, particularly in France, with the philosophy of integralism, which broadly speaking is the notion that a rightly ordered state needs Christianity, and specifically Catholic Christianity, to be the basis of government, law, and public policy. And among those who are persuaded that liberalism has failed, not a few, even in the United States, are beginning to explore again the claims of integralism as a possible bulwark against the darkness they think must inevitably come to the land of the free and the rest of the West. But integralism as an essential component of good government was flatly rejected by our founders and framers, not least because of the centuries of bloodshed that followed the Protestant Reformation and Catholic Counter-Reformation. The first effort to end the slaughter of the wars of religion in Europe was the formation of the principle cuius regio, eus religio, meaning whose realm their religion. But after a few short interludes of relative peace, the battle over how religion and government fit together was joined again and again, both between Catholics and Protestants and among Protestants of different theological convictions and political loyalties. This very struggle, in part, explains why some Englishmen fled their home and sought refuge in what became New England. Various efforts to meld Christian faith and systems of government have all failed, usually in violence. And by the time of our revolution, the founders were certain that to be successful, our new political union required that the state have no religion so that all citizens of the new nation could have whatever religion they chose for themselves. Which brings us back to the question of how, if at all, the good news is related to good government. In the 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his church has lived under every form of government yet devised by man. Under some forms of government, the church has flourished. Under others, she has suffered, sometimes grievously. But even if the gospel provides no program for the government of nations or political philosophy to guide Christian deliberation on how we ought to live together, it is nonetheless true that the gospel does provide principles on which Christians can assist others in building a just city in which the dignity of all persons will be respected and protected by law. And it seems to me that classical liberalism has provided more examples of good government as measured by that standard than any other philosophy or system of government in history. And if that is true of all political systems which rest on classical liberalism, it is true most of all, I believe, of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. In a recent interview with Jay Nordlinger of National Review, George Will observed that all forms of political conservatism or classical liberalism in Europe trace back to blood and soil, altar and throne, hierarchical societies, and a yearning to preserve ancient structures and ranks. And all of that, in one way or another, is a form of integralism. George Will then contrasted that kind of old world conservatism with American conservatism which exists to conserve the ideals of our revolution and founding 
ideals which seek to secure and defend the natural and unalienable rights of those who consent to be governed and thereby institute our government. <coughs> Since the taking of flesh by the eternal word of God, the kingdom of God has been among us. And the church, and only the church, is on earth the seed and beginning of that kingdom. But until the last day, Christians must continue to pray every day, thy kingdom come. And while we wait for the final coming of the kingdom in the fullness of time, we must assist our neighbors of every, of every religion and of no religion to build a just political order to promote the dignity, freedom, and prosperity of every human person. Classical liberalism is surely not the last word in good government, but it is in harmony with the good news, and I believe that it is the best foundation for good government yet devised by mortal flesh. Even in our present political distempers, it would be foolish to abandon or despair of a governing philosophy that has served the cause of liberty so effectively so long and for so many. And in the next two lectures, we will consider ways in which Catholics can honor the achievements of this great republic, even as we dedicate ourselves anew to the task of helping our fellow citizens hear the call of Jesus Christ to follow a more excellent way to perfect and eternal freedom. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As a reminder, you can ask questions using the Slido app and vote on them. We have a couple of them already, so feel free to type more, though. Um, the first question is, are we closer to the brink of dissolution of our republic now than we were during the Civil War? No. For an obvious reason. Nobody is shooting... That, that's not quite true, but um, state governments are not calling up militias to throw out federal troops. If, if, if we see the governor of Texas um, expelling uh, federal troops from his republic, then we'll know that we're getting closer. But no, the, 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 the strains on, on civility, um, which are all everywhere evident, don't rise to the level of the late 1850s, or so it seems to me. This next question is in a similar theme, and that is no form of government can secure justice, liberty, and happiness without citizens' virtue. Do we have the time to rediscover truth before our republic falls? Well, I think God alone knows the answer to that question. Um, no constitution, no structure of government can instill virtue in citizens. Um, if, you, if you're driving uh, through a city and approaching an intersection, um, and all around you are other cars moving at 35 miles an hour or more, you take for 
granted, or at least you hope you can take for granted, that everyone will do what the traffic signals tell them to do. So if your signal says green, you enter the intersection and go through it at full speed in the confident assurance that you're not going to be killed by drivers whose signal tells them to stop. But the signals themselves do not cause the vehicles to stop or go. Right? It requires that the drivers be well taught and act responsibly. The, the, the procedural levers of government that are put into place by written documents do not accomplish in human persons the ends for which they strive any more than the traffic light can stop your car. You have to stop your car. So who does form virtue in citizens? Churches, religion, synagogues, mosques, uh, civic organizations, the little platoons of society, uh, and it all begins in the family, right? We learn to be good and to not be evil from our mother and father, right? What, what parent looks into the crib of their firstborn and says, oh, how beautiful, be evil, right? No, we have to, we learn from our parents and then siblings and then our schools the, the, the primary virtues that make the difference between a virtuous and a vicious life. And what's happened all over the West, in, in large measure because of the sexual revolution, is the dissolution of the family. Right? The, the, the number of children who are born married is staggering. Staggering. Uh, and, and as an increasing uh, literature illustrates, without any reference to religion, the effects in the lives of young men of missing fathers right, are literally ripping our cities to shreds. Um, so the answer to the question, is it possible for a sufficient, if I may make a bad pun, a critical mass of the citizenry to be imbued with virtue before the republic is ripped apart by centrifugal forces, I, I can't say, but it would require something like a great awakening. A uh, Look, the primary work of civilization for all of human history has, has come to this. Teach men to behave responsibly sexually. To be with one woman and to be accountable for the children that woman bears. When men do that, civilization prospers. When men don't do that, it frays. I think more than anything else, if government can contribute to this in any way, it would be public policies that provide incentives for strengthening marriage and family life of the kind that um, Poland and Hungary are now exploring, right? What was it in Hungary? Um, uh, if you have uh, at least four children, you never pay income taxes again, or something like that. The, the point was provide a, a specific tangible incentive to, to behave in a certain way. So. I'd be in favor of that income tax law. But, <laughs> all right.
The next question is, is there an important distinction between the inherent right of freedom of conscience and the prudential right of freedom of religion? Sure, there's a conceptual difference. How it cashes out would be very difficult to uh, Uh, explain and enforce in a human society. What, what Vatican II acknowledged in Dignitatis Humanae is that um, by virtue of being human, every person um, has um, the natural right um, of freedom of religion, meaning no conversion at the point of a sword. No one can force you to embrace a religion, meaning uh, both a set of beliefs and a code of behavior, or to conform to the norm, the external norms of uh, worship, say, or, or, or behavior. Um, and, and that natural human right to religious freedom um, is expressed in part by the liberty of conscience. Another uh, uh, essential teaching of, of Christian anthropology is that in every human person there is a sphere or zone of privacy in which Caesar has no authority, right? So, so Christ's distinction between Caesar and God, in addition to saying the state is not sacred and Caesar is not a god, means um, that in the conscience of the human person, no authority can compel you to assent, right? You may be compelled by legal authority to obey, but you can't be compelled to assent. So, for example, um, if there's an unjust law, let's say it's Jim Crow segregation, um, a man in the liberty of his conscience may know that this law is unjust and disobey that law in order to give evidence of his conviction and the interior freedom he possesses uh, with regard to that unjust law, knowing that he may well go to prison. Right? The cost of civil disobedience in this case will be paying the penalty of the law in order to serve the law. So freedom of uh, religion and uh, the liberty of conscience um, will always be um, in tension with whatever regime one lives in if there are uh, not only unjust laws but competing um, interests. For example, Christians who believe that as a matter of principle they cannot serve in the armed forces pacifists, right? Even if a just war is being waged in the defense of a nation, there are some who say, I am bound by my faith not to serve in the armed forces. Well, what do you do with those people? In some cases, uh, uh, laws, even in Western democracy, say, fine, if, if you can demonstrate in good faith to a magistrate that you are indeed a conscientious objector, will let you serve in another way. You can be an orderly in a hospital, right? In other nations, there are no distinctions. 
if you will not serve, then you will be imprisoned. Um, liberty of conscience, freedom of religion, and the, the awkwardness of meshing with uh, the structures of law is sometimes messy. All right, this is probably going to be the last question, and that is, do you think there's any connection between freedom of religion and relativism, either in theory or practice? No. Freedom of religion is an, is an attempt to explain that before God, man remains free, always free, even to say no to the truth. The entire cost of freedom is the capacity of the human misuse of freedom. This offended John Calvin. Right? The sovereignty of God is irresistible. And, and so no matter what we do, whether we assent or object, the elect are elect, and the reprobate are reprobate, and that's that, because God will always have his way. Well, I think that's insane. It's genius, but it's insane. God himself knew before the foundation of the world, before the creation of our first parents, that we would fall from his grace, that we would be, all of us, implicated in a catastrophic primordial rebellion that would unleash misery of unimaginable proportions because we would misuse our freedom. And he allowed it anyway. Because the only way to prevent man from misusing his freedom is to remove the freedom, in which case we are robots, not children. So the plan of salvation was to redeem the misery by, yes, allowing us to misuse our freedom, but in a way that could be redeemed, restored, by the perfect obedience of the Messiah, who would take upon himself the consequences of all the misuse of human freedom of every time and place. The only way religious freedom and relativism are the same thing is if God would allow 2 plus 2 to equal 18 or 147. He doesn't. The fact that we don't correspond to reality um, is not a denial of reality but protecting the human dignity of every person requires acknowledging that we are free to misuse our freedom. And I think the, the paradox is resolved on that.